Hello, everyone. Um, just need to make sure everything's working here. Okay, so yeah, as Ali said, I'm gonna talk mainly about oyster catchers, but I wanted to give an introduction as well to just what we do in general. Um, and yeah, I'll just, I'll just get going with that to start here. So the Skeek Bay is a small local nonprofit and it's been very volunteer driven over the years. Um, and we've been around for a really long time. So it started up in 1990 with a group of a group of local people that wanted to continue research in the Lesquique Bay area. Um, the reason that research had begun in that area in particular is because of ancient murelets that nest there. So they're a colonial seabird that only nests on specific islands um, throughout Haida Gwaii, and they're, and they're very important. Um, we actually have half the world's population of, of ancient murelets on Haida Gwaii here, so it's an important place to be, to be studying them. Um, and yeah, the organization started out to kind of keep that project going and continue long-term monitoring and research. But throughout um, all this time and the different projects and everything, we wanted to really make sure that we also involved um, everyone in the research. So we do have field staff that kind of lead all of it. So myself and, and one other um, biologists right now are the, the field staff, but we get volunteers and student interns and school groups and all sorts of other people that come and learn what we're doing and help us out with those projects. Um, we started out studying ancient murelets, but quickly expanded to many other projects as well. So if you were to come and volunteer with us, you could be doing many, many different things, bird related or not. We do marine mammal monitoring, we look at sea lions, we watch for killer whales. Um, we also pull invasive plants and, and do um, all sorts of different things. So it's a big variety. Um, I decided today to focus on, on uh, black oyster catchers because it's a project that's been going on for a really long time and we actually have a ton of information about it, um, about oyster catchers in the area, but it's not something that we always really emphasize. So I wanted to kind of get it out there that we're studying oyster catchers and um, wanted to encourage everyone to look out for banded oyster catchers, and I'll get more into what that means if you're not familiar with banding um, in a little bit. So this is East Limestone Island. Um, this is where it all started out, and the ancient murelet colony. Um, there's actually another ancient murelet colony um, on Reef Island, which you can kind of see in the background there. So that big island back there. And then in the far distance in this photo is Guayhanas, that's Lyle Island and some of the islands of Guayhanas. And we actually, with our oyster catcher project, we actually have expanded down into Guayhanas as well. So we work with the Guayhanas staff and, and with their biologists and we do very similar projects down in Guayhanas. Um, so that, just in case you're not familiar with the area, here's a, a map of Haida Gwaii and then where Lesquique Bay is. So we're south of Sandspit um, just down here, and there's a bunch of different islands in the area. So East Limestone's where our camp is, but there's all these other islands, and you can see there's quite a few small ones. Um, small islands are perfect habitat for oyster catchers. So a lot of them look like this. It's rocky shoreline, very exposed, lots of intertidal, and that's what oyster catchers really like. So just make sure everyone's on the same page and knows what an oyster catcher is. Um, they're pretty distinctive birds, which is really nice for studying. Um, they're pretty big, they're solid black, but they've got this big orange beak, so it's pretty easy to, to kind of differentiate them from the other birds out there. Um, they're shorebirds, and so that means that they're spending all their time along the shoreline. It's great because they're easier to spot that way. They're not floating off in the ocean, they're not going into the forest, um, and you can kind of find them along the shoreline. Um, they have a nest that's called a scrape, so it's basically, it's not really a very built-up nest. It's basically just some gravel. Sometimes they just lay their eggs directly on the rocks. I think this one photo, you can kind of, you can kind of see um, the eggs are just on the rocks there. And then, although the oyster catcher adults are pretty easy to see, the um, eggs and chicks are very well camouflaged, and that's because they're very exposed and they're out in the open. Um, so this means when you're in an area with oyster catchers breeding, you really have to be careful when you're walking around. Um, obviously very easy to mistake those eggs for a rock and just maybe step in the wrong spot. And then the chicks, when they're little, they're camouflaged as well, and what they do to hide is they just kind of tuck themselves under the rocks because they blend in really well 
Um, so why, why did we decide to study oyster catchers in particular? There's a lot of birds out there. Um, what's important about oyster catchers? They're pretty easy to study. As I mentioned, they're only along the shorelines, and so they're easier to find. You can go by boat, and you can actually spot them from a boat. Um, but that's not the only good reason to study them. So also, they are entirely dependent on intertidal for their food supply. So they nest in the high, on the high rocks along shorelines, and then they eat food out of the intertidal. So if something happens or is slowly happening to the intertidal in an area, we might be able to see that but based on the oyster catcher population. So if oyster catchers are breeding successfully in an area and they're all good, then maybe the inter intertidal is quite healthy. Um, if something happens to their food supply, then they're not going to be doing so well. So they can be used as an indicator of, of the kind of general ecosystem health. Um, also, it's important to study different species just to kind of keep track of what's going on with those species in particular. So um, there are certain threats that, that oyster catchers face, and one of those would be a change in, in their food supply, so pollution or, um, or kind of longer-term climate change and things like that. Um, human disturbance and development is also an issue in some places. Luckily in Haida Gwaii that's a bit less of an issue just because there's not so many of us around and not as much development, but people like to use shorelines and build on shorelines and use beaches and everything, um, so it's always a concern. And then one of the, one of the threats that we've actually noticed in Lesquique Bay is invasive mammals. So we have raccoons on Louise Island, which is the biggest island in the Lesquique Bay area. And um, I thought I'd just point out, over, over time, we've noticed that the oyster catchers that breed on Louise Island, these, the red dots up there, um, are the territories where they used to breed on Louise Island, but actually are no longer successfully breeding um, in those areas. And those are spots that we know there's raccoons. Um, just offshore, on some of these smaller islands where raccoons can't get to, or they can't get to all the time, there's um, successfully breeding oyster catchers there. So that, it, it's not completely, we, we haven't completely figured out that it's definitely raccoons, but it's very likely that raccoons would go and eat the oyster catcher eggs if they're in the same area, and then over time, a breeding pair would be much less likely to go back to, the, to that spot if they hadn't successfully raised young at that spot in the past. Um, and the raccoon in this photo is from our, one of our wildlife cameras, so that's one of the ways we monitor for raccoons in certain areas, is using remote wildlife cameras. So how do we go about studying oyster catchers? Um, it involves a lot of boating and um, shoreline surveys and watching for birds along the shorelines. Um, we get out at their nest sites and we, do, we take various measurements and count the eggs and count the chicks at the nest sites. Um, and then something I wanted to kind of focus on is banding. You can see with, these are American oyster catchers and they dates. Um, and you can see there's, you know, four or five birds. They all look exactly the same, but the one has green bands on, it, on its legs. So that one, you would be able to track it and kind of figure out what's it, what it's doing. And maybe it has different behavior than the other ones, or maybe it's going, you know, if, if they're going to different places in the wintertime or something, um, that allows you to track them. Um, a lot of songbirds are banded and then recaptured at various places throughout North America, and that allows you to look at migration patterns. Um, and then, yeah, and then you can also look at individuals' behavior by putting bands on them. So we've got a, a pair of puffins up there, and one of them's obviously the male, and one's the female. And once you've figured that out, then you can say, is there differences between um, what the male and the female are doing? But, but just by looking at the birds, you wouldn't be able to know which one is the male and the female. So how do we go about banding oyster catchers? Um, we try to get them when they're chicks, so before they can fly oyster catchers, and we have done it in the past. I wasn't involved with it, but it does make it much harder when the birds can fly. So we, what we do is we go to the nest sites and we figure out when the chicks might be big enough to band, but um, not so big that they can fly away. The, the oyster catcher up in the top there, it's a bit hard to see because of the color, but there is a there's a chick up there, it's hiding in the rocks, and that is an ideal size. So it's not flying yet, but it's pretty big, so we can put a band on it. Um, and then each bird in any banding project gets a metal band with a unique number on it. So that's actually controlled by um, the federal governments of Canada and the US, so that every bird in North America gets an individual number, which is 
quite an organization challenge, I'm sure. Um, and then we also put on plastic bands. So because oyster catchers are, they're pretty big and you can see them from a distance, you don't need to recapture them in order to figure out who they are. Um, we put plastic bands and then you can actually see those plastic bands from a distance. So um, I wanted to walk you through what you might see if you, if you were to see a banded oyster catcher out there. There's a few different options of what you might see. Um, unfortunately, it's a little bit hard to see, but if you, want to, if you want to take a look at this slide again later to get an idea of what they look like, just let me know. Um, this one has a metal band and then a yellow plastic band above it. And originally in the projects in the 90s and even into the 2000s, we were using um, plastic color bands to indicate where and when they were banded. And unfortunately, some of those bands would actually fall off, we assume, or degrade over time because the plastic wasn't really sturdy. So this bird just has the metal band left, um, which is much harder to spot. But it's still important because if you get some good photos of that metal band, you can actually usually get some of the numbers off of it and you can figure out who that bird is. Um, now, just in the last four or five years, we've started using a different type of plastic and it's got a letter number combination on it. And that is great because with binoculars and cameras, you can see from a distance, you can, you can get a really good idea of, of where and when that bird was banded. So this one in the middle on the bottom here, this is last year's chick. It was banded last year in Lesquique Bay and it's got, you can just see an N on its band there and then the metal and a color band on the other side. And then this is one of this year's chicks. So again, a dark blue band with a letter number on it. Um, and so with, with all this banding, what are we finding? Um, there's actually been some really interesting observations over time, which are really only possible with really long-term projects. So I just wanted to tell you about a few of our significant birds. We've actually, in Lesquique Bay, we have the oldest black oyster catcher that anyone has reported, as far as we know. So we know that we have a bird that's been breeding for 17 years in the same spot in the Skidans Islands. And so that means they, they start breeding when they're, when they're three or four years old. So it could be older than 19 years old and is likely a bit older than 19. Um, and this isn't actually, it's not uncommon for them to get that old. We have another bird that's definitely 17 years and possibly older and another one that's 18 years old. So, so that's pretty cool. And up until this point, um, there was a report in, two, in 2013 that was done up in Alaska and they tried to find all the older birds that had been banded and I think up until that point it was 15 years old. So, so we didn't know that they could get that old and regularly get, get that old. Um, we also have, as far as looking at dispersal patterns, we have an oyster catcher that is breeding about 50 meters from where it hatched as a chick and then we have another one that's 60 kilometers away from where it hatched. So you can see there's a, a bunch of variety in where they end up breeding. Um, and I'll show you the maps of, of where those guys are breeding. So um, this is Kingsway Rock. This is Limestone Island again up here in the Louise Island shoreline. And then there's this little rock here which has a ton of oyster catchers on it. There's six different pairs that are nesting on this little rock. And the one bird that's now 10 years old, it hatched here and now is nesting over here. So really, really close to where it hatched. Um, and then another one, which we figured out because we're doing the, the surveys down in Guajanas, which is, is pretty exciting. So we've got a much broader range that we're, that we're surveying now. We had another one, so this is Limestone Island again, and this is Reef Island. It, there was one that hatched on Reef Island and now has established itself down on Alder Island. So that's the, the most Southern extent that we go. Um, and I mean, there's a ton of space in between. So this is 60 kilometers. Um, this is Lyle Island, which is a huge island, Ramsey here, and it's all, all the way on the other side of Juan Perez Sound. So what we would really like to spend more time on and get everyone involved in is looking for oyster catchers um, in the wintertime, because there are actually a lot of oyster catchers in Skidigat Inlet in the winter and just kind of around, around town. Um, we don't really know where they all go in the winter. Maybe they migrate off island. Um, maybe they all stick around. So um, yeah, that's part of the reason I wanted to focus on oyster catchers is to try and encourage everyone to, to get involved and look at their legs. Um, and part of the reason I got excited about it as well is because JAGS actually 
um, told me that he had a banded oyster catcher photo, and he said, oh, you know, who's, who's banding oyster catchers? And I said, oh, that's us. <laughs> so I figured I better, I better advertise that fact, and then, and then everyone can let us know. Um, so this is his photo. We weren't actually able to get any um, numbers off of this one, but it was by the library, just in Queen Charlotte, which makes me think it's maybe a similar bird that we saw, or this, maybe the same bird that we saw last year. So this was a pair that I saw down by the library in Queen Charlotte, and this one actually has a band. It's very hard to see, um, but if you expand, or if you zoom in on those, on those legs there, you can see there's just the metal band there. And that one was exciting because we actually were able to get enough numbers off of the band that we knew it was banded in Lesquique Bay as a chick. We, didn't, we couldn't get the exact age, but it was between 17 and 22 years old. So, so again, one of those really old birds. Um, and yeah, and they do tend to be pretty habitual. So if um, you see a banded bird and you don't have a camera and you think, oh, well, maybe that's not that useful, um, if you let us know and we can try and get back to that same spot, they, they do seem to kind of go and forage in the same spots and kind of group up in the same spots. So, so it's still really exciting, even if you don't get the details of, of the band. So if you see one of those big groups of oyster catchers, this, this is kind of a small group really, but I was searching around for a, for a photo of lots of oyster catchers. Um, take, yeah, take a really good close look at their legs and um, see if they've got any bands on them. And yeah, that's, that's all I've got. Um, we do involve volunteers in a lot of this work, and so if anyone's interested in volunteering, let us know or take a look at our website. It's got lots of details about the field season and, and all of the projects we do. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Um, so just in case everyone didn't hear, the, the question was, do we think there's much movement in between the mainland and Haida Gwaii? And I don't actually know. Um, we really know with, with our birds especially in particular. Um, there was one report of a bird from Alaska that was in Masset Inlet. So um, people up in Alaska have been banding as well and they use different color combinations and different numbers so that if, if they show up somewhere else, then you can identify those as Alaskan birds. Um, that's the only report I've heard of at the longer distance migration. Um, and yeah, I, I meant to mention actually as well, so we, we are now using those blue bands with the letter number combination on them and other projects around the province and in Alaska will use a different solid color on those bands. So they, if you were to see an orange one or something that, I think in the Gulf Islands, they're banding, banding oyster catchers down there and using orange and then Pacific Rim as well, they, they band oyster catchers with that same type of band, but um, different colors. So, so that's a, a good way that we could track, potentially track whether our birds are leaving the islands or whether other birds are coming here. Most likely, of course, um, birds kind of tend to head south in the winter rather than north. So um, we would expect to see the Alaskan ones down here and maybe ours on Vancouver Island or something. Oh, so I think, I have no idea, but I think they got the name because the American oyster catchers, which I showed one slide and there was American oyster catchers in it, they do actually eat oysters. And I think that's a, a high proportion of their diet is oysters. So I bet they were named elsewhere. And then it's the same type of bird here, but they eat oysters here. They eat limpets and abalone and other, other little invertebrates. But um, yeah, we don't really have many oysters here. So that, yeah, it's kind of a funny name here. Yeah, yeah, so the question is um, when we're banding, how, how do we make sure the band doesn't get too tight over time? And, um, so their legs actually don't grow too much, but obviously when they're really little, they, they have much smaller legs. Um, the main thing is that what we do is we use the size of band that, that they have to have when they're an adult. Um, so this has been determined through studies over time, and it's again, it's something that um, we don't actually figure out what band size to use. They, they just send the correct band size to us. So there's, there's all sorts of documents on if you're banding this 
um, species, you use this band size, and if you're banding the chicks, that's that's where you could maybe get have an issue. But we make sure to put the band that's big enough for the adult leg on it, and that's that's why I mentioned as well we can't band them when they're too little because they just their legs aren't big enough to fit the band on it. No, no, and. Yeah, obviously we have to be careful with that and, and monitor that over time. And um, there's there's been studies just doing experimental banding projects to make sure that certain types of bands aren't going to hurt their legs or anything. Um, but yeah, we do we do pay attention to that. If if we see banded birds, we try to get a really good look at the bands and make sure they're not kind of wearing or or caught or anything because um, that would be an issue. So yeah, but generally it's it's fine and it's kind of people have figured out over a long time what, what works and what doesn't, so, yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks Viv. So Viv has a table, well, Esqueak Bay has a table, if you haven't seen it already, just out in the hallway there, so you can get some more information on the lunch hour, and Viv will be around for the rest of the day as well, so you can talk to her. Um, I just want to bring your attention over into the corner. Kara is a graphic facilitator, and she's recording the sessions today, so she's going to be visually capturing the presentations, and then in the afternoon, the panel as well, so you guys can go over there and take a look at it. Um, we'll also take a photo of that and share that online so you guys can see it later. And also, Haidegui Radio is here today. You can't see them, but they're behind this wall, and they're live streaming the whole session and recording it. Um, there's Linnea. So for those of you that have friends or family that couldn't make it but want to hear the presentations, you can um, share that with them. But at this point, I'd like to invite up Krista Captain. Um, she's over here in the corner. Krista is the IBA coordinator, so you might see the word or the acronym IBA on some of the posters out there. So she's going to come up and explain about what that means um, and why, they're, why they are important bird areas, and, and so you guys can um, learn a bit more about that. Um, I'll hand the mic over to you. It's about 10 minutes long or so. Um, yeah, so come on, come on up. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me here today. Um, it's uh, my first time here on Haida Gwaii, so I'm pretty excited. I've never been here before. Uh, I'm actually uh, from uh, Comox on Vancouver Island, the Comox Valley. So it's a bit similar here. We have some similar birds and a bit similar habitat, but it's just much more wild up here and lots more birds. I was particularly excited to see just the numbers of black oyster catchers, which you've talked about. Um, we don't get those kind of numbers where I am, so that's really fun. Um, it's been a couple of years since I've become obsessed with birds, and uh, partly because of taking on this role as the um, coordinator for BC Nature. Uh, Basically, the, the acronym is IBA, but it's Important Bird and Biodiversity Areas Program. And it's essentially a stewardship network uh, that I work with. So it's uh, across the province, BC-wide. And uh, the Important Bird and Biodiversity Areas Program started um, about 30 years ago, it was an initiative of a group called BirdLife International uh, for uh, bird conservation around the world. And there's probably several thousand areas around globally that were designated as important bird and biodiversity areas based on scientific criteria, um, scientific data, uh, numbers particularly that are gathered were gathered at that time uh, the Canadian uh, portion of this program is coordinated the Canadian partners are bird studies Canada and nature Canada so the BC portion is uh, coordinated by BC nature so who I work for in one sense uh, BC nature is a federation of uh, naturalist clubs throughout BC there's over 6,000 members who are folks who are, some are professional, but 
uh, many are amateur naturalists, just people interested not just in birds but plants and so on. So BC Nature is all about volunteers and people. So um, we uh, work on the important bird and biodiversity areas program in partnership with uh, Bird Studies Canada. Um, so about 10 years ago, BC Nature uh, wanted to connect more people with birds. So they created this uh, stewardship network that was linked to these areas that were mapped out and designated as important bird and biodiversity areas. So the key thing is uh, people, a volunteer stewardship uh, network. So in the network, uh, the stewards are called caretakers and the volunteer caretakers are uh, individuals or perhaps groups that have a knowledge of uh, bird identification and who are um, in those areas, you know, they they live or work in these areas that are important for birds. Um, and the goal was to match caretakers with um, all of the IBAs throughout BC. There's 83 IBAs in BC, and uh, 19 of those are around Haida Gwaii, so it's really important here. Um, the role of the caretakers um, is uh, partly monitoring, visiting the areas and identifying and counting the birds that are there, uh, but also public education and other initiatives that they can think of to, in one sense, the one basic goal is maybe just to get people excited about birds. I mean, I'm particularly uh, hooked on birds and uh, the, just the more people that are interested, um, the, the more successful the network and conservation of birds will be. So actually the Lasquique Bay Conservation Society is one of the caretaker groups in the network and they're already, they were doing bird conservation work for uh, decades really before even being engaged in the program, so they're ideal an ideal group. So my role, as I said, is basically uh, coordinating the network of people, coordinating the network of volunteers, and supporting, so in one sense, I said I work for BC Nature, but really I work for the volunteers in the sense that I um, try as much as I can within our very limited budget to provide uh, support for initiatives that they might come up with or things that they need. For example, keeping a communications network going amongst all the people. Um, often people have successes that you know, would be great to be shared with um, other people in the network uh, or questions to ask. And um, having this network um, is, is really helpful for that kind of sharing. Uh, sometimes the caretakers, well, we can provide certain educational materials, uh, brochures and newsletters and um, other more um, scientific information from our, um, in conjunction with our Bird Studies Canada partners. And uh, sometimes I can provide um, assistance with fundraising initiatives or letters of support. Um, one of the roles of a caretaker being to just be the eyes and ears and hands on the ground if in case there's um, some issue that comes up, um, a disturbance or, um, you know, just knowing that they are part of a network of support that they can tap into and um, get some assistance. So. Um, Basically, I, I have a display table out there as well with a bit of information on some of the important bird areas that are close by here. Um, and one of the ways we communicate beyond our own network is with an e-newsletter, which is basically an email, nicely formatted email that I send out maybe just once every three, four months. So I have a sign-up list if anyone is interested in just keeping in touch with what we're doing, that's one way. Or uh, take a business card and email me anytime with um, questions. Um, 
Yeah, so I think that's the main part of what I want to say, and I'll take a couple of questions, or I'll be here later, well, I'll be here throughout the day as well, hovering around the table or at lunch for questions. Yes? Yeah, so the question was my personal views on bird feeders, I guess. Um, so I'm not a scientist. Um, I'll just say that. But I, I know there is a, a, a spectrum of um, uh, some scientific knowledge as well as uh, just personal feelings about uh, bird feeders. You know, there have been uh, studies. There's actually been surprising studies that have shown um, both benefits and, you know, detrimental effects of bird feeders. Um, I guess my personal, so I'll just speak from a personal level, uh, we actually have some seed feeders at home and hummingbird feeders. In the winter, we put them up. And, okay, humming, to use hummingbird feeders as an example, these are for Anna's hummingbirds, which are actually moving northward um, Naturally, I think, well, naturally, they're, they're following uh, probably changes in climate and so on. Their distribution is moving northward. So I guess my husband and I feel that we are supporting, their, um, supporting them in their movement northward. <laughs> and then with regard to seed feeders, we're pretty careful about what we put out. Um, black oil sunflower seed is kind of the main thing, and you also... I, I live in a town, so we're mindful of um, cleaning up what's on the ground and not attracting rats and other, in fact, we, well, we don't attract rats, but we're, so we're mindful of that and of what kind of seed we put out and cleaning up and so on. So I guess just to recap on a personal level, I feel that we're, we're supporting the birds that live in our area in the winter um, and as well as birds that are, their distribution is moving northward. But um, I'm kind of willing to listen to all sides of the story. I don't know that there's a particular right or wrong answer. <laughs> Does that help? Any other questions? Okay, I'll be at the table um, later. That was, uh, thank you very much for allowing me a few moments, spur the moment actually, to come and talk about the important bird and biodiversity areas. I'll also add that Krista is going to be on island for the next few days and she's doing um, a full one hour presentation if you're up in Masset. Um, she's doing that at 7 p.m. on Monday at the Delcatla Bird Sanctuary. So um, if you're up there or if you know anybody up there um, and want to hear more, um, you can join her then. Um, I'm just going to exit this out and invite David Bradley up next. David Bradley's with Bird Studies Canada. You heard him this morning, and he's gonna do a presentation on protecting seabirds, um, and then I'll come back on after he chats before we break for lunch. Thanks, Alison. Uh, yeah, I'll do it. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's really nice to be here to talk to all of you and to see such a great turnout. There's so many of you here. It's really interesting to see the passion that people have for birds. And I can understand why in Haida Gwaii um, it's such an amazing place for birds, and I, I love to come here and see them. Um, this presentation is about, entitled at least, Protecting Pacific Seabirds from Invasive Alien Species. Uh, and as it shows here, I work for Bird Studies Canada. Uh, I'm a program manager here in British Columbia, uh, and my contact information is there if you have any questions. So I guess the first question you might have is, what is an invasive alien species? Um, and it's sort of a, a catchy title, and it's not always evident what it means. Um, 
basically, there's two invasive invading species, alien invasive species here. Uh, the raccoon, I think you've seen that picture before because it was taken by Viv. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and then rats, as you know, are, are a big problem here in Haida Gwaii. So invasive alien species are generally, um, they're invasive, and that usually means that they come to an area and they often take over uh, and they'll, they'll predate a lot of the prey there. Um, often to an extent that they actually strip resources and there's nothing left and they'll often move on to another area and take it. In, sense, in that sense, they are invasive. Um, and aliens, pretty much, as you might suspect, is because they're not meant to be here. They were never here naturally, and they've been introduced often by humans. Um, so you combine those two things, you have an alien invasive species. And unfortunately, they are responsible for over 50% of bird extinctions over the past 500 years. And this is just an example of the birds that have become extinct, primarily due to invasive species. This is a picture from the Handbook of the Birds of the World. Uh, those birds are all now gone. Uh, and there have been hundreds of birds which have become extinct due to humans, or due to invasive species. Sorry, I'm using my notes here a little bit. Uh, we know that more than half of bird extinctions since 1500 have been due to invasive species. And 70% of all natural or all animal extinctions since the 17th century for which there's known causes are due to invasive alien species. So that's a, a, a shocking statistic when you realize um, the number of birds that have disappeared before our lifetimes but in the past um, and continuing through into the present day uh, is because of invasive alien species. We think about the dodo, that's a classic island species that's gone extinct um, and that was due to humans hunting them. You can call those alien invasive species. Um, but many of the species down in the South Pacific uh, have gone extinct due to rats and raccoons, or not raccoons, rats and possums. Um, uh, what else you've got? You've got rabbits down there and pigs, feral pigs, feral cats. They're very destructive to bird populations. Uh, we know that one third of the 1,300 globally threatened species are declining because of invasive species. These three pie charts, hopefully you can read it on the screen screen, um, show three different um, distinctions of, of birds, whether they occur on oceanic islands, such as Haida Gwaii, on continental islands, such as islands and lakes, um, or whether they uh, uh, um, occur on continents, that's the third uh, pie chart on the right. And you can see the proportion uh, of globally threatened species in each of those three different habitat types. And you can clearly see that on oceanic islands, 74% of those oceanic species um, are threatened by invasives. Um, so that's quite a, a, a stunning number. Uh, and this is particularly acute in the Pacific. So that graph or that map is showing you all the islands in the Pacific for which there is uh, a threat of alien invasive species. Um, unfortunately, Haida Gwaii is, is up there in the top right and it's not currently on that map. Uh, primarily because this is produced by our, our partners in BirdLife International for their presentation, so I've posted it from them. But this clearly shows the islands that uh, alien invasive species are most prevalent. South Pacific is one hotspot um, of uh, extinctions. We know that the Pacific there's now more threatened bird species per unit land area or per person than in any other region in the world. There's 42 critically endangered bird species um, in the Pacific. Um, and that's not a good story at all. In fact, if you look at the rate of extinction um, over the past, since 1500, these are bands every 25 years, and you compare island birds and continental species and show the number of extinctions is pretty even uh, on, on islands. Uh, and it's starting to pick up in continental species. But island birds are definitely becoming extinct at a faster rate than um, continental species. And you might ask, well, why is that the island species are so susceptible for extinction from invasive species? Uh, it's primarily because island species have not adapted naturally to these, these animals that have been introduced. They haven't lived in their presence and they haven't evolved defenses against them. A good example for that can be just behavioral adaptations, um, being scared. A lot of invasive species um, will occupy islands and those birds living on those islands are not scared of them. So there are great examples from New Zealand, for example, uh, of possums eating birds alive on their nests because they don't even know what to do and they just haven't, they haven't evolved in the presence of these predators. So that's, that's one of the reasons why islands are so susceptible. But we know that conservation does work, um, and its impact can be dramatic. Some examples of this are the black robin in New Zealand. That's a species that went down to just one or two individuals. 
um, but through concerted effort of um, mammal eradication, uh, that's resulted in the recovery of the species. So now there's a healthy population on the Chatham Islands um, east of New Zealand. And a good example is right here in Haida Gwaii uh, with the uh, ancient murelets there. Um, the Nightbirds Returning Project was definitely a, a, a very successful project to look at uh, uh, how conservation work can impact bird populations. So we started, a, uh, you might wonder, well, what is BirdSafe Canada doing here? How are we involved? And we do it by partnering with groups such as Lesquique Bay Conservation Society and BC Nature. It's only through these partnerships and the, the, the concerted effort of a partnership can we actually achieve successful conservation. It's often because conservation measures are very expensive to actually implement, so it takes partnerships um, and sh knowledge sharing to actually achieve conservation. So we have worked quite a bit with uh, BirdLife International. As Chris was talking about, we are one of the co-partners of BirdLife International. Uh, and we actually have been involved in a Pacific-wide um, invasive alien species uh, conservation project. And those are some of the examples where the project has happened. Uh, and uh, Haida Gwaii, again, is in the top there, and it's highlighted by that nice red figure. I think you've seen that um, in several of the uh, invasive species protection pamphlets that you've seen. And I think Haida Gwaii, for me personally, is particularly interesting because species like the city shearwater, which I hope you've seen here in the summer months, uh, often you get them right in Skidigat Inlet or maybe slightly further out. If you're out in a boat, you'll see them drifting past. And this is an amazing bird. And I, I noticed this first when I was um, doing my graduate work down in New Zealand. I was living down there for five years and I spent some time grubbing in burrows that pull chicks out of, um, out of nests there. Uh, and I was struck by the, the threats that they face in New Zealand from invasive species. And it's actually very similar to the threats the birds in Haida Gwaii face. And they're actually connected. So birds that will hatch in New Zealand spend the, um, the post-breeding season drifting in the South Pacific. And then around halfway through their first year, they'll switch into the North Pacific and then spend time right up near Alaska current, uh, right off the coast of here. So these birds you see here are actually hatched in New Zealand. And they'll go back down there to breed. So they drift around the Pacific their entire lives, and they go down there to breed. And they'll face the same threats that birds here face. So it's a really interesting connection uh, and shared problems faced by, uh, by a bird living down in New Zealand and then spending the rest of its life drifting around the Pacific off the coast of Haida Gwaii. And we're also connected in the cultural aspects of it too. They have a harvest of, uh, of sooty shearwaters down in New Zealand. They call them mutton birds. I guess they taste a little bit like ewes and rams old ones at least, um, and there's a harvest of them there, and because there's a traditional harvest here in Haida Gwaii, that's also a, a similarity between the two cultures. So the project here in Haida Gwaii um, is, like I said before, a partnership between all these organizations um, down the bottom, uh, and as I said before, it can only be done through working in partnership. We have four main goals uh, on this project to identify priorities and appro approaches and partners, and we've done that um, quite successfully. Um, commencing in some eradication and control projects, and we do this through funding uh, groups such as the Ski Bay Conservation Society to go out there and, and control some of the invasive predators on the, um, the, on the islands that they're caretakers for. And there's a good example that uh, um, Viv was talking about with the raccoon eradications that happen there every year. Uh, talking about biosecurity and policy, uh, and that's something we're working on now, is working with the Haida Nation uh, and working with various government groups here on Haida Gwaii to achieve some sort of a policy um, to um, correct biosecurity procedures, at least for conserving those birds. And also building local capacity, and we do that through talking to groups such as yourself and working with uh, BC Parks, I'm sorry, BC Nature, uh, to work with uh, IBA caretaker groups. And we focus most of our work within IBAs because they are so important to birds. And I think Krista covered this very well, um, and so did Viv, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But most of the 19 IBAs in Haida Gwaii uh, are depicted there. And we focus on burrow nesting alcids, so basically they're the flying penguins of the north. Uh, they are very similar in their body size. They can fly, that's the main difference from penguins at least. Uh, but they live very similarly. They uh, live in burrows uh, on islands, such as Lesquite Bay is a good example of that. And they're particularly susceptible to, uh, to invasive species, such as rats and raccoons. 
and burrow nesting petrels, such as the storm petrels depicted here. These are birds that spend their entire lives out to sea. They only come back to land to breed, and it's during that brief period when they're visiting the nest that they can get taken by predators. And they're young in their nests, um, and their eggs as well, also highly susceptible to be being eaten by predators. And we're doing this through some invasive threat assessments. We use cameras. Um, we've been working with uh, Viv and the uh, Liskeek Bay Conservation Society. Again, that's why we're using her photo there, <laughs> because so we've worked with them in the past to try and uh, get as much coverage as we can across Haida Gwaii to get an idea of where these inv invasive species are present on certain islands uh, and also absent from other islands. And it's important to know where they are in order to control them. Anyone know what that bird is down the bottom? Looks like an alien walking around. Any ideas? I, I told you, you can't answer that. It's the chick of a sandhill crane, and we didn't expect that. It was on Langara Island, and one day it walked in front of the camera, and I was like, my eyes popped out. I was very surprised. But that's a chick, and then the adult followed it shortly afterwards. Um, so that's quite surprising. We didn't know they were breeding there, actually, so that's a really good, a good record. And so we've also been working with a database of 97 different islands across those 19 different IBAs. And this database is meant to house information about the presence or absence of invasive species. And so whenever one of our partners visits one of those islands and they either detect uh, invasive species or don't detect invasive species, um, then we collect that information in this database. And we know that rats and raccoons are present on many of the islands, um, but there are also many un uninfected islands out there, and those are often very close to source islands from of those predators. And if you look on this, this map, the red areas, uh, you probably know this because you might have seen the pamphlets that have been sent around, but the red areas of Haida Gwaii uh, have rats on present. Um, although we've recently learned from Kerry Bergman that perhaps Moresby Island doesn't have as many rats as it was thought, and there might actually not be a resident population of rats on Moresby Island anymore. Uh, and there's a few rat-free islands which are indicated there and highlighted um, in green circles. Uh, and those are very important because they're areas which the islands can now breed uh, without the threat of invasive species. Um, and of course, some of them are rat-free because of eradication projects. Langar Island is a great example of that. It had many rats in the past, and they were eradicated. Unfortunately, that had to be done through poison, which is not a pleasant way to kill animals or to remove invasive pests. Uh, but unfortunately, sometimes it's, it's highly necessary to remove them because it's the last case, last-ditch scenario. You can't. You can't do anything else except remove them. It's the most efficient way of doing it. And the islands often recover quite quickly uh, once you remove the predators. And that needs to be investigated more closely to see how those seabirds have recovered from that. So what we also do is conduct biosecurity. Uh, and we had a presentation just a few years ago, a few days ago, I mean, uh, to talk about biosecurity uh, in Haida Gwaii and how we can actually promote correct biosecurity measures. This is not a scary word. It sounds like biohazard, but it's not in any means, except maybe for the the birds nesting there, it is a hazard to them. It's basically trying to promote correct practices to prevent and um, remove invasive species from these islands, so reduce the threat to their survival. So we do this by raising awareness of the issue amongst the public, such as yourselves. We encourage better practices through um, rat-free, or rat-free, uh, sorry, rat removal um, from boats visiting some of these islands. Uh, and developing some of the policies and enforcing some of the regulations that are currently in place. So that's what we were meeting with a few days ago. Uh, we met to discuss biosecurity, particularly in the Ski Bay. Um, so that's one of the things we're doing as well. But we have reasons for optimism, because we know that restoring island, e island ecosystems does work, and we have some very clear examples of that. From our partners down in the South Pacific, um, they had a massive eradication project down in French Polynesia. And they removed all the rats and raccoons, not I keep saying raccoons, rats and possums and other such species from these islands. And the songbird population there has recovered dramatically. Uh, and this is a major project. It's for the biggest eradication that BirdLife International has ever done. And it was particularly difficult because they had to fly um, close to 1,500 kilometers between the, the base station where all the, po the poisons were being collected um, and then ship those by helicopter and drop them on the islands, then go all the way back to recover all those um, to collect all those poison and then go back again. So it takes quite a bit of effort to do that. Um, and it took one and a half million euros for this eradication, so it's not a cheap project at all. Um, but it's very successful, and so it's led to the recovery of six critically endangered uh, and endangered species are now saved from extinction. These are, these are birds that were very close to extinction and only occurred in these areas. 
the one on the top left is actually a sandpiper that lives in trees. It's a really strange one. It's known as a Tuamoto sandpiper. Uh, and that was on the verge of extinction because of rat predation, um, but it was saved because of this eradication. And this is something that Haida Gwaii, fortunately, is not quite in the scenario yet, um, but we know of uh, the effect of rats um, on breeding zebra populations, and this has been clearly shown by uh, work done by Guaihanas. Um, but so only through, but the second half of, of sorry, the top half of Haida Gwaii and primarily around Graham Island, that area is not being covered by Guaihanas and some of their eradication procedures. So we're trying to take over some of that to try and work with our partners, um, particularly the Haida Nation, to try and work on projects that can actually promote the recovery of these species. So I know you're all hungry and you're probably all eager to get to lunch. So I want to thank our funders um, and our partners on this. Um, and so with that, I'm going to end it. Thank you very much. If anyone, if anyone has any questions, maybe you can ask me now. Should you ask now? If anyone has any questions, I'll, I'll take them now. Who wants lunch? I do. Um, just a few quick kind of housekeeping items before we break. Um, so you'll notice in the front, Foyer Lesquique Bay has um, some activities set up, set up for kids. There's one kid out there. So if you have a little kid inside of you and want to do some of the activities over the lunch hour, feel free to do so. There's also binoculars there, so you can take those and head outside for a little walk around in fresh air. Um, You'll see posters just on the windows out here, and we really encourage you to contribute to those. One of them is, what is your favorite bird and why? Um, and then the other one is about where you've seen birds on Haida Gwaii. So take a few minutes and um, put up your thoughts on both of those posters. Um, we've had a few questions about the, the poster here that's in right when you walk in, um, that has the different birds of Haida Gwaii in um, Haida language as well. Those posters right now, um, they're not for sale. You can grab them on the way out, but um, we encourage you to, to keep them on the walls until the end of the day. Um, and then we've chatted about maybe selling them at a, a different date, because um, we've had a few people interested in actually buying them. So um, we'll share that information probably through Lesquique Bay after. Um, and then outside, you've already probably seen the tables, but again, feel free to visit those. And then, um, that's about it. So we're going to break for lunch right now. There is a beautiful meal prepared by um, Sandy Alsop. Um, should be here any minute. So about 12.45, um, lunch will be served right in the bistro. So feel free to help yourself when it arrives. There's a diversity of food. So there's vegetarian options. There's soup and wraps going to be served. Um, you can also head outside with your meal as well. And then I really, really encourage you to stay for the afternoon. It's going to be a really good discussion um, with a series of panelists from the CHN, Guayanas, and Bird Studies Canada um, on biosecurity. And so if you're not familiar with that term and what's going on on Haida Gwaii, stay for the afternoon and you can hear about it and ask questions about it as well. So um, with that, thanks everybody for um, asking great questions and sticking around. And we'll see you at 1.30.